Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Oh, wait. We don't need to do any shooting today. We still have a story to finish from last week. So here, kind listeners, is part two of Lizzie Borden. When we last left our story, the brutally murdered body of Lizzie's father, Andrew, had been found on the sitting room sofa. The police were on the scene, and the family physician, Dr. Seabury Bowen, had taken a quick look at the body and estimated death had been very recent, at perhaps 11 o'clock. Maggie Sullivan, the maid, and neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, had just made the grisly discovery of Lizzie's stepmother, Abby, in the second floor guest bedroom, also violently murdered. So then, that's where we'll pick up our story. Dr. Bowen examined Abby and determined that, with her cold body, she had most likely been murdered perhaps 90 minutes earlier than her husband, say around 9.30 or so. Now understand that these were just preliminary exams. Both bodies would soon be autopsied for a more thorough forensic examination. By the way, both of these autopsies were performed in the Borden dining room. Recall from the first episode that the household had been sick in early August and that Abby had even feared poison. Well, both hers and Andrew's stomachs were tested during the autopsy and no poison was found in either. The police on hand questioned Lizzie, and would later say that they disliked her attitude. To them, she seemed far too calm for such a situation, and it struck them as odd. She said she had no clue where her stepmother was that morning, apart from the fact that she'd received a note calling on her to go visit a sick friend. Lizzie said she was in the dining room doing some ironing, when Abby left the house, and had no idea when she returned. She had certainly heard nothing from upstairs that morning. When police asked her whereabouts during the 15-minute time frame in which her father was killed, Lizzie stated that she was out in the backyard barn, looking for sinkers for an upcoming fishing trip. When police checked the barn loft, where she said she had been searching, they found the dusty floor undisturbed by any footprints. On top of this, the heat up in the loft was stifling, and this seemed likely to discourage anyone from spending more than a few minutes up there looking for something that wouldn't be needed for a number of days. Despite these rather unconvincing stories, no one bothered to check her for blood stains, and they did little more than give her bedroom a cursory glance before she said she felt unwell and wanted to lie down. These officers would later be chastised, for their lack of diligence in failing to check her or conducting a more comprehensive search of the room. While the police continued their search of the house, initial suspicion fell upon a Portuguese laborer who had briefly visited the house earlier that morning. Supposedly he was asking to be paid some wages that were owed to him, but Andrew told him to come back later and send him away. This poor guy ended up being arrested, but fortunately for him, he was later released due to lack of any evidence. And speaking of evidence, 
In the basement, the police found two hatchets, two axes, and another hatchet with a broken handle. The break in the handle seemed fresh, and the ashen dust that coated it looked slightly different from the other tools. It seemed to have been deliberately applied to make it look like it had been in the basement for some time. Furthermore, its blade was three and a half inches long. This was consistent with the wounds on both the victims. Hey, could that have been the murder weapon? The police seemed to think so. So what did they do? Did they bag it as evidence? Nope. They left the broken hatchet and the other bladed tools right where they found them for the time being. Now, I'm no detective, but that doesn't seem like very good police work to me. By that afternoon, Lizzie's sister Emma had arrived home. If you'll recall from our previous episode, she'd been visiting friends in Fairhaven. A telegram was sent to her, telling her to rush home. John Morse, the girl's uncle and house guest, had also returned. And a little while later, the girl's friend, Alice Russell, came over to stay with them during such a difficult time. That evening, with the bodies of Andrew and Abby laid out and covered in the dining room, the household settled in for the night. Alice shared Lizzie's room with Emma right next door. Morse, contrary to popular legend, did not spend the night in the guest bedroom where Abby was murdered. Instead, he slept in the spare bedroom on the third floor next to Maggie's room. Police were stationed around the house and would be patrolling the property all night. And now here's where a rather suspicious event takes place. In the early part of the night, a policeman noticed a light in one of the basement windows. He stooped down to be able to see into the window and saw Lizzie and Alice holding a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He could see Lizzie enter the door of the privy. As I said in our first episode, the Borden house did not have indoor plumbing. The basement privy was little more than a glorified indoor outhouse. It was connected to a sewer line, and water could be run through it to help move things along, but it definitely was not a flush toilet. Anyway, he also stated that he saw Lizzie exit the privy, and both women returned upstairs. Now, having to go to the bathroom in the night is hardly suspicious. What is suspicious is that the policeman saw Lizzie return to the basement by herself a little while later. She went to a different area where there was a type of wash tub supplied by a hand pump. The officer said he couldn't see exactly what she was doing, but she appeared to be bending over the tub. Gee, that is a strange thing to be doing during the night. What makes this even stranger is that perhaps five feet away from the tub was the pile of bloody clothes Andrew and Abby were wearing when they were murdered. Also near the tub was the slop pail that Lizzie was seen carrying earlier. It contained a bunch of bloody pieces of cloth. Lizzie would deny that second solo trip to the basement, so we didn't know what she was actually doing. As for the pail with the bloody pieces of cloth in it, she embarrassingly told the police that it was from her, as she put it, monthly illness. Now back then, talking about such a thing just wasn't done in polite society. So the police never did inspect the contents of the pail, out of respect for Lizzie's privacy. Two days later, Andrew and Abby were laid to rest in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. 
Also on that day, Eli Bent, a clerk at the S.R. Smith drugstore, went to the police to tell them that the day before the murders, Lizzie had come into the store. Bent went on to say that she attempted to buy some prussic acid, which was quite a deadly poison. She claimed that she wanted to use it to clean some of her furs. Bent refused to sell her any, telling her that because it was so deadly, one needed a prescription from a doctor to be able to buy it. Huh. Trying to buy poison the day before the murders. That seems rather odd. Also on August 6th, police conducted a much more thorough search of the Borden house and finally took the broken-handled hatchet into evidence. That evening, the police came back with the Fall River mayor, who told Lizzie that she was a suspect in the murders. The following morning, Alice Russell entered the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up and burning a blue dress in the kitchen fire. Her explanation for her actions was that it had been covered in old paint, so she was just getting rid of it. This, too, seems rather odd. The inquest into the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden was held on August 9th in a courtroom above police headquarters. Presiding was criminal judge Josiah Blaisdell, with District Attorney Hosea Knowlton doing the questioning. A number of people were examined, including Maggie Sullivan and John Morse. Lizzie herself was questioned for four hours and gave confused and contradictory answers. The inquest adjourned two days later, and Lizzie was arrested for the murders. The next day, she entered a plea of not guilty to the murders and was transported to the jail in the nearby town of Taunton. On August 22nd, Lizzie was brought back to Fall River for her preliminary hearing. Judge Blaisdell pronounced her probably guilty and ordered that she face a grand jury. The grand jury met in November. They refused to issue an indictment, but then reconvened to hear new evidence from Alice Russell. She told the grand jurors the incident of Lizzie tearing and burning the blue dress. This new information, when combined with previous testimony from Maggie Sullivan that Lizzie had been wearing a blue dress the morning of the murders, convinced the grand jury to indict Lizzie for both murders. By the way, this testimony also convinced the Borden sisters to cut all ties with their friend Alice. Lizzie Borden's trial began on June 5, 1893, at the New Bedford Courthouse. She was defended by Andrew Jennings and George Robinson, two high-powered attorneys who were among the best money could buy. Robinson had even been the former governor of Massachusetts. Prosecuting the case was District Attorney Knowlton, along with Thomas Moody, who would later go on to become a Supreme Court Justice. Before a jury of 12 men, Moody opened the state's case with a two-hour speech about how Lizzie was the only person who had both motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. For most of this time, Lizzie watched from behind a fan. Also on that first day, the prosecution submitted the broken-handled hatchet into evidence as the murder weapon, along with the skulls of both victims. These had been removed during the autopsies, and each showed large areas shattered and missing 
attesting to the violence of the attacks. When Lizzie saw the skulls in court, she fell into a faint that, according to newspaper accounts, lasted several minutes and sent a thrill of excitement through the awestruck spectators. The first handful of witnesses for the prosecution testified concerning events in and around the Borden house the day of the murder. The most important of these was the maid, Maggie Sullivan. She said Lizzie was the only person she saw in the house at the time of the murders. She said how she had washed the windows and had opened the door for Andrew when he returned from his walk. She also described how she was awoken from her nap at 11.10 by Lizzie's cries for help. She did score a point for the defense, however, when she stated that in her over two years of working for the family, she always observed Lizzie and Abby as having a pleasant relationship. This statement would later be refuted by other prosecution witnesses. Several witnesses were brought in to attest to seeing Andrew at various places in town during his morning walk, and John Morse described breakfast that morning with the family, his talk with Andrew, and his leaving to go about his business. After this, several other witnesses told of events and conversations after the murders had been discovered. Dr. Borden told of Lizzie's story about being in the barn looking for fishing sinkers. He also said Lizzie told him she thought her father's murder might have had something to do with disgruntled tenants. Upon cross-examination, he said that he had prescribed morphine for Lizzie to calm her nerves, and conceded that this could very well account for her confused and contradictory testimony during the inquest. The neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, testified that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress the day of the murders, but could not recall seeing any blood on it. Assistant Marshal of Fall River, John Fleet, told of his interview with Lizzie shortly after the murders. During this interview, he referred to Abby Borden as Lizzie's mother, to which Lizzie corrected him by saying, She was not my mother, sir. She was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. After this, Alice Russell took the stand and gave testimony that was quite compelling. She described a conversation she had with Lizzie the day before the murders, in which Lizzie told her of being uneasy and having a sense of foreboding that something bad might happen. She also recounted the blue dress burning incident. Upon cross-examination, the defense attempted, through their questions, to suggest that a person trying to destroy such incriminating evidence would hardly do so in such an overt fashion as Lizzie allegedly did with the dress. Further testimony from Alice Russell told of another conversation she had with Lizzie about the note Abby supposedly received calling her away to a sick friend. This conversation took place after the house had been thoroughly searched with no alleged note being found. Alice said that she suggested to Lizzie that maybe Abby burned the note, to which Lizzie replied that she probably did. This exchange, of course, was a sarcastic dig from Alice in reference to Lizzie's dress burning. The defense continually used their cross-examination of prosecution witnesses to punch holes in the prosecution's case. The big question was, where was the murder weapon? The prosecution had failed to prove that the broken-handled hatchet 
was what was used in the attacks. Furthermore, where was the piece of the broken handle? It was never found. The defense also exploited the prosecution's own timeline. It stated that there had been between 8 and 13 minutes between Andrew's murder and Lizzie's cry to Maggie for help. The defense suggested the great difficulty someone would have washing blood off themselves, their clothes, and the murder weapon, and then hiding the murder weapon, all within that short span of time. The trial's decisive moment came when the court ruled that Lizzie's inquest testimony, full of confusing and contradictory claims, could not be submitted into evidence. The court's reasoning was that at the time of the inquest, Lizzie was, for all practical purposes, a prisoner charged with a double murder. Therefore, her testimony, given without the presence of her attorney, was not voluntary. The court said she should have been warned of her Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and rejected the prosecution's assertion that she was only a suspect and not a prisoner at the time of the inquest. The prosecution suffered one further defeat before resting their case on June 14th. They had wanted to have the drugstore employee, Eli Bentz, recount the story of how Lizzie tried to purchase some prussic acid a day before the murders. With the jury excused, the prosecution brought in medical experts, druggists, furriers, and chemists to try to establish the qualities, properties, and uses of prussic acid. The court didn't buy the prosecution's foundational case and ruled that this evidence and witness be excluded. As for the defense, they only called a handful of witnesses. Two men testified that they saw a strange man walking down 2nd Street near the Borden house the night before the murders. Another said he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk near the house at about 10.30 on the morning of the 4th. A plumber and a gas fitter each took the stand to say that they had both been in the Borden's barn loft doing work a couple of days before the murder. These statements definitely cast some doubt on the police claim that Lizzie's alibi about looking for fishing sinkers in the loft was suspect because the dust was undisturbed. Lizzie's sister Emma took the stand next and asserted that Lizzie's relation with her father was wonderful. She also insisted that relations between Lizzie and Abby were quite cordial. The defense had also hoped that Emma would testify that the Bordens had the custom of disposing of old clothes by burning them, thus justifying Lizzie's alleged dress burning, but the court ruled this evidence was inadmissible. And then it came time to sum up the case. Lizzie's lawyers, Jennings and Robinson, tag-teamed the defense's closing argument. Jennings spoke first, arguing that there was not one particle of direct evidence against Lizzie, and reminded the jury that the broken-handled hatchet had never been linked to Lizzie or even proven to be the murder weapon. After this, Robinson spoke, claiming that the crime must have been committed by a maniac or a devil, certainly not by someone with such a respectable background as his client. District Attorney Knowlton gave the closing argument for the prosecution. All accounts say he did a fine job summing up the evidence point by point. 
But then it came time for Justice Dewey to instruct the jury. Newspaper accounts of the trial say that the judge's instructions to the jury would have made a fine closing argument for the defense. (laughs) He told the jury that they should not depend on circumstantial evidence alone. He also charged them to take into account Lizzie's exceptional Christian character, which, he said, entitled her to every inference in her favor. On June 20th, the jury began their deliberation. After an hour and a half, they quickly returned a verdict of not guilty. Lizzie let out a yell and sank into her chair with her face in her hands. She let out a second yell of joy as Emma and her counsel rushed to congratulate her. So wow, not guilty. If Lizzie didn't do it, then who did? Well, despite her acquittal, she remains the prime suspect in these murders. And let's face it, if one were to remove the gender stereotypes of the time, and the fact that she came from an upper-class family, perhaps the trial would have played out differently. After the trial, Lizzie and Emma purchased a rather large house in the Hill neighborhood of Fall River. The sisters lived in luxury, enjoying live-in maids and a host of other servants. But although they lived well, Lizzie was ostracized by Fall River society. It didn't help matters that in 1897, her name was again brought into the public eye when she was accused of shoplifting during a trip to Rhode Island. In 1905, the Borden sisters had a falling out, and Emma moved away. They would never see each other again. Lizzie died from pneumonia on June 1, 1927. Nine days later, Emma died from chronic nephritis in a New Hampshire nursing home. Both sisters were buried side by side in the family plot at Oak Grove Cemetery, right by Andrew and Abby. The story of Lizzie Borden and these horrible murders has been told and retold so much over the years that it has taken on the quality of an American myth or legend. Let's face it, 130 years later, and we're still talking about these events. There have been books, movies, and countless documentaries. For you music fans, the heavy metal group Lizzie Borden, spelled with a Y, was prominent in the 80s and 90s, although I think they still might be around today. I don't know, I never got into them. And of course, let's not forget the popular skipping rope rhyme, supposedly written as a tune to help newsies sell newspapers during the trial. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like this. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Hey, kind of catchy. It seems as though society takes a morbid interest in sensational, unsolved murders. There have been plenty of others throughout history. But talking about them, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends. And check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again next week.